Let us pray for the Lord. Gracious Father, first we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for him giving his body and shedding his blood for our sins. Lord, if if it were not for the work of Christ, we would all be hopelessly lost. But Lord, we thank you that Christ did the most selfless act in all of human history by giving his life. No one took his life, but he gave his life for the sins of all who believe. And Lord, because of that, Christ calls us to him to be saved. He calls us to him to believe in him. He tells us in his word that we ought to enter in through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the narrow way and the broad ways that Jesus spoke about. We realize that vast numbers of humanity are headed for eternal judgment. And we confess that we ourselves are in every way worthy of such judgment. By nature, we are corrupt. We are defiled. Our wills are in bondage to our own sinful desires. Our very souls are ruined, lifeless, and utterly profane because of our sin. By ourselves, we are without strength. We're without merit, and Lord, we're without hope. And unable to lift ourselves up from our fallen condition. We try in many ways, Lord, to get rid of our sins. Whether through medication or through um, going on social media. Or just looking into ourselves, Lord, we all fail to lift ourselves out of our life of sin. But Lord, we found hope in Christ who opened the narrow way and ushered us through the small gate. We are grateful recipients of your abundant mercy and the exceeding riches of your grace. And all are made available freely to us from the hand of Christ who gave himself for us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us unsparingly. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to rescue us from sin, death, and hell. Although, Lord, we have a right to be destroyed, you freely grant us forgiveness, life, and the bliss of heaven. You sent us the perfect mediator, our blessed redeemer, the man, Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame of it. Discounting the horror of bearing the great weight of our sins and bearing our judgment in his own body. So that we might die to sin and live unto holiness. 
Lord, how horrible that must have been for Christ who prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. Nevertheless, our Lord Jesus was neither dissuaded nor dispirited, but he accomplished the work that you gave him to do. Father, he could have turned away from what you have called him to do, to go to the cross. But Father, we thank you that Christ went all the way. He accomplished that work so much that he declared triumphantly in his last dying breath, it is finished. Christ suffered for our sins. He bore our sorrows. He paid our penalty. He removed our guilt. He bought our redemption. He fulfilled all righteousness. He justified multitudes. He brought glory to your name. And he fulfilled all your good pleasure. By his work, justice was fully satisfied. Christ himself was vindicated. Your law was upheld. The truth of the gospel was established. And your eternal love was powerfully put on display. Lord, enlarge our hearts, our, our poor and needy hearts to comprehend these truths better and fill our mouths with humble thanks for what Christ has done. Lord, we need ongoing cleansing so that we may come before you with clean hands and a pure heart. We enter into your presence on our knees with joy, anticipating your peace and your blessing. Well, filled with hope, we look forward to that glorious eternity awaiting us in heaven, where we will worship you perfectly. Until then, Father, cleanse our hearts, purify our minds, give us a heart to worship you and you alone. Help us, Lord, to forsake all else and to follow you. And Father, this morning, as I prepare to preach this passage in Galatians, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I can't do it in my own power. I can't do it by my own wisdom or intellect. I can only do it faithfully, Lord, with your help. And Father, send your spirit to illuminate, to make clear your truths that we hear this morning about faith or works. Are we justified by faith or by works? Father, make your truths clear to us this morning. And we will be ever so grateful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Galatians. We're in the third chapter. For our visitors, we've been uh, going through the book of Galatians in the sermon series in this book. Uh, we started a few weeks ago and we're in the uh, third chapter of God's letter to his church. Last week we looked at justification uh, by faith, justified by faith and what it means to be justified is to be to be declared guiltless. That means without guilt, without sin and that is granted to every uh, believer that God saves us and he justifies us. He declares us 
uh, not guilty of sin. It is as if we have never sinned. It is a judicial act that God does in removing that guilt of sin from all who believe in him. So we continue with that theme this morning here in uh, verses 1 through 9 of the third chapter. For those who um, haven't been here since the beginning, uh, the letter of Galatians was written to the church in Galatia. And Paul was writing to them because uh, someone had come among them. Uh, those who were Jews converted to Christianity uh, came and told them that they had to obey uh, the law of Moses in order to basically be saved or be Christians and Paul came to tell them that that was not the case so that's the context of this letter that we're saved by grace through faith not by doing works of the law not by trying our best to obey God and trying our best to do right so we pick up here in the third chapter verses 1 through 9 and this is the word of the Lord and Paul begins by using very Strong language. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So chapter 3 begins a new section in Paul's attack against the doctrine of the Judaizers. And again, the Judaizers were those Jewish converts to Christianity who uh, went around telling the Gentiles who, uh, who were the Galatians that they needed to be circumcised in order to be Christian. They had to obey the Mosaic law. So Paul continues his attack on the Judaizers and his presentation of the gospel of grace. In the first two chapters, again, we talked about that. Uh, that was basically his autobiography. He was giving his testimony, his conversion, and how God had called him to be an apostle. And he defended his apostleship and the revelation that he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the climax was what we looked at last week in his confrontation with Peter that we read toward the end of chapter 2. So now Paul uses this last argument from chapter 2 to make the transition into a theological argument. So now he's getting into theology. And so in the next 
uh, few verses, Paul gives a doctrinal defense of the doctrine of salvation by free grace in verses 1 through 5. And then he indicts them for their spiritual folly by calling them fools and foolish. And he gives two arguments to prove his case, and we're going to look at that this morning. So the big idea is that justification by faith proves that we should continue to live by faith. So the first section here is verses 1 through 5. And the main principle of that is the argument from personal experience that our own interest into spiritual life was by faith and not by works. So again, he says in the beginning, oh, foolish Galatians. This was the foolishness of forgetfulness. He says, what has bewitched you, or who rather has bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you crucified? So he started off with a stinging rebuke. You foolish Galatians. Why did he say that? Because what they was doing was foolish. Now the question is, is Paul wrong for using the word fool? Does Paul violate Christ's commandment in uh, Matthew 5 and 22 where Jesus said, And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell? Christ does condemn speaking with contempt or out of wrath or self-seeking anger. If you call someone a fool out of self-seeking anger, you are in sin. If you call someone a fool out of wrath and you just get angry at them and call them a fool, that is sinful. But throughout the Bible, God classifies people as fools. The fool is the naive person or the, the simple person. And these are types of persons whose thoughts and patterns of life are not shaped by Scripture. The foolish are those who think and act like the world. Sometimes we look at people and say, they're just acting like a bunch of fools. Because they're acting like the world, they're not acting in the way in which God called them to act. You can say that in a way that is righteous and holy. So when Paul was calling them foolish, he wasn't saying it out of some type of fit of anger or some type of temper tantrum. He was saying this because what they were actually doing was foolish. They were believing what the Judaizers told them that they had to be circumcised in order to be called a Christian. And so that's why Paul began with that strong rebuke. And he was talking about their lack of obedience, not their lack of intelligence. So he was confronting their serious deception by asking the question, who has bewitched you? The word bewitched uh, invokes practicing black magic or to deceive through magic. So these Galatians were being bewitched by superstitious promises. And who is under all of this superstition? Who's, who's under this bewitching of them? It was uh, the role of Satan. All temptation is bewitching because the temptation that Satan promises results in something that causes us to set aside the truth of scripture. Satan would never tempt you to obey God's word. 
He will never tempt you to do anything that lines up with scripture. Satan's greatest temptation is to pervert the gospel. Is to take the gospel and pervert it, to, to muddy it up. That's his greatest job, is to pervert. And this is what the Judaizers were doing. They were causing the Galatians to uh, pervert the gospel. So that's why Paul says, who has bewitched you? Who has played some type of magic trick on you? Who has deceived you? And the thing about Satan is he, he, he normally doesn't come directly to us to tempt us with some grievous error or sin. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't come out right and say, I'm going to tempt you today. Rather, he will seek to bewitch us, to entice us. That's what he does. He's very deceiving. He's very conniving when he tempts us. And that is how he gets us, right? Because the point of deception is to what? To deceive. To make you not think what's actually happening is happening. And this was Paul's indictment of the Galatians. They were being bewitched. Uh, Robert Gramacki, uh, the theologian, said, in a sense, the Galatians were victims of an evil spell. They must have been hypnotized or awestruck by the forcible uh, words of the Judaizers. So that's kind of the language, that, that's kind of the meaning that Paul is getting here, that, that someone put these Galatians under a spell by telling them that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian. So that's why Paul said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? So this is what bewitching does. It causes us to depart from biblical truth. Anything that causes you or that leads you or anyone that causes you and leads you away from biblical truth is bewitching you. They're not literally casting a spell on you, but that's basically what it's likened to, that you are being bewitched, that you're being put under the spell of someone who is false. And then he says toward the end of verse 1, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So Paul reminds them of how God had delivered them from the guilt of sin. From the burden of an accusing conscience. And from all the misery of trying to make themselves acceptable to God. And how did God do this? He used the preaching of Christ in the gospel to deliver them from sin. With his burden, with his guilt, and with his bondage. That's why he said, whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. The job of the gospel preacher is to present Christ to you. To show you that Christ is the only one who can deliver you from sin. He's the only one who can deliver you from the guilt of sin, the burden of sin, and the bondage of sin. And that's what Paul did with the Galatians. So why would you go from that to go back into sin by trying to add to the work of Christ? If someone is not presenting to you Christ, and I've told our church this as long as we've been a church, if I 
get before you and don't present Jesus Christ to you, then I'm sinning. A lot of preachers present themselves. They present their brand. They present their social media profile, their Facebook profile. They use church as a way of marketing themselves. We see that here in our area, in Calhoun County, in Anniston. Just go on some of the Facebook pages of some of these churches and some of these pastors there. They're about promoting themselves. They have billboards with their faces on it. Because they're not presenting Christ. They're presenting themselves. They're presenting their own selfish gain. They're presenting you their lifestyle. The kind of vehicle they drive or the type of clothes they wear. But Paul was saying to the Galatians, I presented to you the clarity of the message. I presented to you Jesus Christ. This is what made what they were doing so foolish. Because the real Christ was presented to them. He reminded them of what the preaching of the cross had accomplished among them. And that is what preaching does. It proclaims Christ crucified. We sing about it. We pray about it in our prayers. When we read scriptures, we read about it. And we preach about it. It is all about the supremacy of Christ. So Paul presented Christ vividly to them so they could see the power of the cross. He's not talking about some type of spine tingling sensation. He's talking about the dramatic presentation of the suffering of Christ. That Christ actually went to the cross, that Christ actually suffered in our place. It was a physical act. And so he was saying that to say, why are you not obeying this truth? Who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who's come in and, 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 and as, as if putting a spell on you? Warren Worsby, uh, the late theologian, said it was Christ and him crucified that Paul had preached in Galatia. And with such effectiveness that the people could almost see Jesus Christ crucified for them on the cross. But despite that, Paul called them what foolish because they had been bewitched. So then in verse two, he says, this only I want to learn from you. In other words, he's saying to them, keep it simple. What does he want to learn from them? Did you? And he asked a series of rhetorical questions. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? There's that word again. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Like, really? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So what Paul is basically asking is, how did you enter into the spiritual life? How did you enter into the spiritual life? Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now, hearing with faith, that phrase in here at the end of verse three literally means hearing in faith. In other words, as they heard the gospel, they responded in faith and repentance. 
So this question implies that the answer that they receive the spirit when they believe not by works of the law. So these are rhetorical questions. And what a rhetorical question is, it's a question where the answer is understood. That you'd have to give an answer. Just as Paul said in Romans 6 and 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may uh, be abound? No. That's a rhetorical question. You know the answer to that question. So Paul is asking them these series of questions. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith. The question to answer is the hearing of faith. Then why are you trying to do works of the law? That's basically what he's saying to them. And this reminds me of the law versus faith. And I'm going to give an illustration here. And I've told some of y'all this before. Those who've been here long enough. Uh, I was saved in a holiness church. You know as they call them. You know the Jesus only churches. Where you had to tarry for the Holy Ghost. And all that stuff. All that nonsense that that, uh, you know, they said if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't saved. You know, that's 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 basically uh, being saved by works of the law. There's no command in scripture that you must speak in tongues to be saved. Salvation comes through hearing by faith, not by doing works. But in those holiness churches, that's what they talk about. Tarrying for the Holy Ghost. And if you don't do that, then you don't, you're not saved. That is soul damning for those who tarry and never speak in tongues according to what they say tongues is, when it's nothing but a bunch of babbling anyway. But that is what they do. They add requirements to salvation. So Paul's saying, which one is it? Are you saved by works or are you saved by the hearing of faith? The Bible tells us in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the preached word that saves. And then I think about our, our Pentecostal brothers, uh, like Assemblies of God and, and Church of God. They, they talk about uh, people needing to get a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. You know, get that second blessing. That's that's the same thing that's adding works to salvation. You need to get that second anointing. You need to get that 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 second or that that special anointing. There's nothing in the Bible that says that is a requirement to be saved. But that's what people believe because that's what they're taught. They're being bewitched, as we as we say it. So you think about the law, the law puts emphasis on the work of man apart from faith. The law is do, 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 do this, do that, and the other. But what did Paul say about the law? The law shows us our sin. We can never obey God's law. I said it before, there are about 613 laws in the Old Testament, most of them in the book of Deuteronomy. And I, like I said last Sunday, we can't even obey the first 10. We can't even obey the first one. That we should have no other gods before him. And I did it last week and I do it this week for those who are here. This is a God. And all the dozens of apps we have on our phone are our God. We covet. We see things that 
other people have and desire those things or we see a lifestyle that someone has and 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 and, and want to live like them hashtag goals that's covetousness did you know that you're coveting what someone else has you you have a desire for something that's not yours how many of us have dishonored our parents even our adult parents the Bible says what honor your mother and your father you should not steal how many of us have stole time on the job amen we're thieves we rolled that clock as long as we could we put a false time in on our time sheet don't you know that's theft we've stolen all of us are lawbreakers so we cannot obey God's law we can't. But that's what the law does. It shows us that we're lawbreakers. Paul said in Romans 7, I did not know what it meant to covet until I saw that the law said you should not covet. And then once he found it out, he realized he was a coveter. Even babies are. You take a baby in the toy section of the store and you'll see what covetousness looks like. When they start screaming and and you want to jump out the grocery cart and, and just grab toys. And you say, okay, all right, take it. And then they get home and don't even play with it. Or they play with it for a little bit, play for it, play with it all day one day. Then next thing you know, it goes back in the toy being with all the other toys that they cry about and then play with. They say, you know, you got a big old thing full of toys that your child coveted. Because we're all coveters, coveters. So we cannot be justified. We do not receive the spirit by works of the law. That is not how it works. And so Paul was telling them that. Faith is the gift of God. Faith centers God. Faith doesn't center our work. Faith centers Christ. John Calvin, the great reformer. Uh, he was taunted by someone in the Roman Catholic Church that he did not have any miracles to confirm his teaching. And he responded that he did not need any. His messages was from the Bible and he had already been confirmed by the miracles recorded in the New Testament. So Calvin was saying, these are the miracles right here in Scripture. I don't need to prove to you by any other means. I don't need to prove to you by any other works that what I'm preaching is true because it's right here in God's word. And then he gets at verse three where he talks about the foolishness of basically switching horses mid-race. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? When they received the spirit, they received everything they needed for salvation. When does the Holy Spirit come upon a person? When they're saved. When God saves us, he gives us his spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes new desires. A new worldview. A new way of looking at the world. New motivations. We're now motivated to please God instead of mo being motivated to please our flesh. We have a motivation to not live a life of sin. We have a motivation to pursue 
righteousness and holiness. We don't have that desire when we're not saved. When we're not saved, we, we have desire to only please ourselves and what I want to do, what I think is right for me. But when you're filled with the Spirit, guess what? The Spirit is going to, as Jesus said in John the 14th chapter, He's going to lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit would never lead you to sin against God. So, Paul was saying here that the Spirit of God indwelling in them brings and guarantees all the benefits that believers have. The Spirit gives us the benefits of redemption. We are redeemed. We are brought back. We are purchased back from sin. Regeneration, when God saves us, regenerate means to make a dead heart alive. Take us from being dead to being alive, spiritually alive in him. He regenerates, he brings to life our dead sinful selves. He gives us his spirit. He makes us alive in him. That's what regeneration means. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. Those who are not in Christ are not sons and daughters of God. Jesus said himself in John 1, that to those who believe, God has given the right to be called children of God, to those who believe on his name. So when God gives us his spirit, he adopts us. He justifies us. We talked about that several times. He declares us not guilty. He declares us righteous. We're without condemnation. Man, these are some great benefits. And sanctification, we are positionally we are positionally sanctified. It means that we become saints. That's why when in, in uh, the openings of some of Paul's letters, he says to the saints. Saint doesn't mean that you're perfect. Saint means that you are sanctified. You are set apart. You are set aside. You are called out from the world. That's what it means to be saint. And that's where the word sanctification comes from. God positions us as saints. So we are sanctified, we are set apart, we are set aside for God. And then you have progressive sanctification where when God saves us, we progress in our sanctification. We become more and more like Christ as we grow in him. We will never reach perfection until we're on the other side. But that is how sanctification looks. Another benefit is perseverance. God perseveres us in the faith. We don't fall away. We don't depart from the faith. We don't say, oh, I tried this Christian stuff. It didn't work for me. I'm done. No, that means that you never were. When God saves us and gives us his spirit. Guess what? The spirit of God perseveres us through the trials that we have as believers because we're going to have them. By God's grace, I've been saved for 31 years and I've had to persevere a lot. But it wasn't me who persevered. It was God who persevered me. And that is one of the benefits also. And then we have assurance. We have assurance of our salvation. We know that God is with us. That God saves us. And guess what? He not only saves us, but he keeps us. We have assurance that one day this life is going to be over. But that we have a place prepared for us. We have assurance that this earth is not it. That this is not the best that it gets. We have assurance that when we do pass away, that immediately we go to be before the Lord. Paul says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. We have that gospel assurance by the spirit. The spirit guarantees that the spirit secures that for us. He assures us 
also that we are children of God. That's what he does. And also one of the benefits is confidence. We have confidence that one day we will see Christ as he is. We have confidence that when he comes back, we're going to go with him. That we don't have fear. Those who are going to have fear are those who rejected Christ. We have confidence that Christ is going to come back for us. We have confidence that he is always with us. Wherever we go, no matter what circumstances, no matter how high the mountains or how deep the valleys, we have confidence that what God is with us. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. We have that confidence. That confidence comes through the spirit. The spirit gives us that confidence. The third person of the Trinity. And we have ultimately glorification. That is the greatest benefit. Sin ravages our body. We're going to get sick. Some may get cancer. Some may have arthritis. Some may have stents throughout their body. Some may have to have open heart surgery. Some may have diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol. We're just going to get old. And as we get older... Our body's going to start wearing down. Young people, enjoy your youth. Enjoy it. One day you're going to wake up and say, man, I didn't feel that pain in my hip before like that. (laughs) You know, man, why do my knees pop every time I stand up? You know, (laughs) it's going to happen one day. Sight's going to start going bad and you might fall and break your hip. You know, you won't be able to get in those big, tall trucks like you used to. You're going to get a minivan, you know, so you can just slide over in it, you know, because you're tired of stepping up. It's going to happen. Our bodies are getting older. And sin has ravaged our bodies. We age. That gray hair is going to come no matter how much you try to fight it. You can color it and cover it up. That's fine. But guess what? It don't mean it's not there. It's in your roots. You just have to cover it up, right? When those roots, all those gray roots pop, we're like, ah! Now to cover it up, guess what? That means it's there. We age. We're going to get older. Our bodies are going to break down. And one day, we're going to die. But for the saints, we will be glorified. We're going to put off this earthly tent. No matter what happens to you can die and get burnt up in the car crash and your body's burned to a crisp but guess what that day when those who die in Christ raise up from the dead guess what your body's going to be glorified you're going to have a new body without the effects of sin you won't have to get fillers put in or Botox and all those different things you know, get, get this enhancement or that enhancement. You don't have to worry about that. You're going to have a perfectly glorified body. That is the benefit of having the spirit of God, being a believer. Those are things that we have to look forward to. We're going to take on glorified bodies. And the Bible says that we're going to see Christ as he is. And we're going to be like him. 
We're going to have a glorified body. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be made perfect as we live in paradise. So Paul is saying, having begun in the spirit, are you not being made perfect by the flesh? That's nonsense. None of the works we do in the flesh can guarantee any of these things that I just read to you. Now, you have the contrast he uses here between the spirit and the flesh. Begun the spirit, being made perfect by the flesh. The spirit, of course, is the gift of God that we receive upon salvation. The Holy Spirit pleases God. The Holy Spirit is received by grace through faith. The Holy Spirit leads, teaches, and reveals Christ to us. Again, it's the Spirit of God who leads us into all truth. He would never lead us. Now, notice I, I use the word he and not an it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not an impersonal force. He is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He's not a thing or an inanimate object like a tree. He is a person. And that is what he does. Christ said that himself. He will lead you into all truth. He will teach you whatsoever things I have said unto you. He is the comforter. Now you contrast that with the flesh. As Paul is saying here in this context, perfected by the flesh means being perfected by circumcision and obeying all the Jewish ceremonies. The flesh is evil. The flesh is works based. The flesh is prone to sin. The flesh pleases the devil and the flesh leads us away from God. Friends, your greatest trouble is with your flesh. Your flesh doesn't want to please God. Your flesh wants to give you evil thoughts. Your flesh wants you to give in to the temptation to sin. This flesh, it's a spiritual flesh, but you, you, you know, you live in a physical flesh. But we're talking about the spiritual flesh. The flesh is opposed to God. The flesh is that part that tells you to rebel against God. So how can you be perfected by that which is leading you to rebellion against God? You can't. You cannot please God by doing works of the flesh. That's why Paul said, are you so foolish? It's foolish for you to think that. Paul is giving these questions to demonstrate the folly of departing from the gospel of grace for a false gospel of works righteousness. That's why he's asking these questions. And what Paul is doing is reminding us of the importance of faith as the living and acting principle through which we experience our Christian life. It is through faith, it is not through works. And it's not just some arbitrary faith, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. So then he talks about the need for per per perseverance rather in verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, have they experienced the work of the Spirit in their lives in vain? The answer is no. The answer is no. They've experienced the work of Christ by the Spirit in a very real way. It was not in vain. 
If it was in vain, then they could do works of the flesh, but it wasn't in vain. For us as believers, we do experience the work of the Spirit in our lives. Again, the Spirit is who perseveres us. The Spirit works in us to do things that are pleasing to God, and we do not experience that in vain. It is real. We have a real faith. We have a real Holy Spirit who works in us. So verse 5 tells us, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you, who is God, and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? On what basis does God provide these blessings? It is through the hearing of faith. It is through faith. It's through the hearing of faith. And this faith is always in God. It is just not some arbitrary just faith. And so then he transitions to the example of Abraham here in verses 6 through 9. So look at verse 6. He says, just as Abraham, so this is an example. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted, accredited to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And I'll explain to you all what that means. For the uninitiated, who is Abraham? The story of Abraham comes in Genesis, the 12th chapter, beginning book of the Bible, where God called a man named Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and called him to go to a land which he would show them. And God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And so that's who this Abraham is. So Paul says in verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. We find this in Genesis 15 and 6, where it says, And he, Abraham, believed God. And what did he believe? You have to go back to verse 4 of Genesis 15. You want to turn there for me or with me right quick. Look at Genesis 15. And it was God's covenant with Abraham. Or in this case, it was Abram. And Abram was talking with God because Abraham was 100 years old. And his wife, Sarah, was 90. Yes. She was old and rickety. But... God still made a covenant with him and his wife. Only God can do that. So it says here, verse 4, Genesis 15, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one should not be your heir. He was talking about um, Ishmael, his first son. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. He was talking about Isaac. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. 
And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So God was telling him his descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars. And verse 6 says, and he believed in the Lord, he being Abraham. And he accounted it for, to him rather, for righteousness. So it doesn't mean that Abraham had some, you know, vague notion of a divine being or a higher power. What it meant by that was for Abraham to believe in the God who had spoken a very specific word to him. It was a word of promise. So when they say he believed God, he believed the word. He believed in the God who had spoken this word to him. Belief has an object, people, and faith has an object. You can't just believe. You know, people say, just believe. Just believe in what? You know, believe is a very popular theme during Christmas time. It came from the, what was that movie, the uh, Christmas movie with the boy on the train going up to the North Pole, Polar Express. You know, what, what was one of the themes in that? Believe. It didn't say, I mean, it's a nice movie. I mean, the book wasn't even that long, but they made a nice long movie out of the, the Polar Express. But it was just believe. Believe in what? Believe. Have faith. Okay. Have faith in what? Just have faith. You know, people say that sometimes, right? Just, just have faith. You got to believe. I do believe, I believe the sky is blue <laughs> because I see it. Have, have faith. These are just general, arbitrary phrases, but in Scripture, faith has an object. Belief has an object. And when it says Moses believed God, he believed someone. He believed in the God who had spoken a very specific promise to him. That's what it meant when it said he believed in the Lord. What did he believe? He believed that promise that, guess what? You, all the nations of the world through you are going to be blessed. That your seed, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, if you can even count them. So his belief, his faith had an object, and that was God. And the thing about Abraham is that before the law was given, he believed God. Before he was circumcised, he believed God. That's the point that Paul was making when he brought up Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. He believed God. He was justified before even being circumcised. This is before God even told him to be circumcised. God told him to be circumcised, I think, in Genesis, uh, later on in uh, Genesis 15. So it was credited to him as righteousness before he was even circumcised. So Paul was saying it to tell the Galatians, you don't have to be circumcised to be justified because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So that's why he brought up this example of Abraham. And so in verse 7 he says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. He's talking about spiritual sons of Abraham. Again, of faith. Of faith in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Not just any faith. 
And I put this as a, uh, a little note in my notes. I said, I don't care for the term people of faith. You hear people talk about a person like as a person of faith or people of faith. My question is always what faith? Even atheism is a faith. It is. Those who claim that there's no God or higher deity. That's a faith. You have to have faith in the fact that what? There is no God. That God doesn't exist. That is a faith statement. So when you say a person of faith, my question is, what faith are you talking about? Whose faith are you talking about? Faith in whom? Faith in what? Some people have faith in trees. They're tree huggers. They go up in these uh, radical environmentalists. They go up and climb in, in trees out in the Sequoia Forest out in California or go down to uh, the Amazon uh, forest down there because they're against deforestation, you know, cutting down uh, trees and everything. And they go and hang out in a tree in protest because they think that trees have spirits, that you're hurting the trees, that trees some have some type of divine power inside of them. They're what we call pantheistic. They believe that God is in everything, even inanimate objects. That's a faith. Do I want to trust somebody who's that loony? No. So when we talk about of faith, of faith in someone, again, as I said earlier, faith has an object. So when Paul says here, only those who are of faith, he's talking about of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Old Testament predicted that Gentiles would receive the blessing of justification by faith as did Abraham. So that's what Paul is telling these people here, his audience. And we see in verse 8, in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed through you. So those of us who believe in Christ are the spiritual heirs of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile. And again, Gentiles are non-Jews. Both Jew and Gentile are Abraham's spiritual children. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians. That they are spiritual heirs of Abraham. And so he summarizes this part in verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. What does this faith look like? Excuse me. Number one, it is Christ focused. And why is it Christ focused? Because Jesus one is the only Jesus Christ rather is the only one who died and was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And it is this Jesus Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. That means they are affirmative. So to be a man or woman of faith 
and thus a child of Abraham is to live a life of faith that is focused all upon what God has promised to do uh, for us in this world through Jesus Christ. That is what it means to, to live a life of faith. That's what it means. A life that is focused upon all that God has promised, all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. That is how a life of faith looks. Remember, it's not some arbitrary word. Faith is an actual thing. It has an actual meaning and it has an object. Also, our faith looks like an obedient faith. Abraham's faith was living and active. It was not a dead faith. Now, his faith is what led him to follow God, even when he had no idea where God was taking him. When God called him in Genesis 12 to go to a land that he would show him, Abraham didn't know where he was going. And he was 75 years old at this time. And the writer in Hebrews 11 and 8 testifies to this. Hebrews 11 and 8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham had no idea where he was going. But guess what? He obeyed God. God told him to get your Get all your livestock. Abraham was, Abraham was a very rich man. He had a lot of livestock. He had a lot of servants. God told him to leave your family, leave your country, leave your kindred, and go to a place that I will show you. And guess what? He obeyed God, and he gathered up everything, and he went. And Hebrews 11 and 8 testifies to that. That's what he did. Our faith is an obedient faith. Now, it doesn't mean that his faith was perfect because it was not. Our obedience is not going to be perfect. Our obedience to God, we're going to, we're going to sin against God. We're not going to always obey God's call. But when we don't, our assurance of forgiveness that we read earlier... If we sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we don't obey God as believers, guess what? Jesus Christ still pleads our righteousness before God. And it's such a great assurance that we have. We're not going to perfectly obey God. We're not going to perfectly exercise our faith. We're not going to perfectly believe God. Abraham didn't. I mean, we saw in, 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 uh, later on in Genesis account when uh, Sarah couldn't, Sarah's wound was barren and so Sarah gave her handmaid Hagar to Abraham and Abraham you know, slept with her and had uh, Ishmael he didn't perfectly obey God but that's why it was credited to him as righteousness from God and not because of what Abraham did God justifies us despite our sin not because of our sin it comes from him it's not something that we can do because we are not going to perfectly have faith in God amen Faith is also persevering. This means not waffling in unbelief and not wavering concerning the promises of God. This also means not staying down when we fall down, but getting back up, dusting ourselves off with repentance and refocusing our life with faith. Christian, when we do sin, guess what? We confess, we go before the Lord 
and we repent. Repent means to turn away from those sins and turn to God. Okay, that means that as believers, we don't live in sin. We don't say, I'm just going to do it no matter what. I don't care. No, we struggle against those sins. We go to God and say, Lord, help me. Help me to live a life of holiness. Help me to live a life of righteousness. That's what it looks like when we persevere. We set out again with the strength of the Holy Spirit. And a persevering faith also means growing increasingly strong in our faith over time. Just like Abraham did. And we grow in our capacity to bring God glory. That becomes the whole of our life that we want to please God. So Paul wanted his readers to know that the true sons of God, of Abraham rather, are those of faith in God. That being a son of Abraham is a matter of faith line, not a bloodline. So just a couple of applications as we close. A couple of questions to think about. Number one. Are we subconsciously or consciously striving to please God by what we do are we trying to gain God's approval by doing things trying to be a trying our best to be a what good person if we're doing that we're doing exactly what Paul said we're being foolish if we're trying to be right with God by doing things that don't mean that we don't do things now, okay? That don't mean we go out there and just live in kind of way. But what that means is we do good because we're saved. We do good because we're justified. We don't do good in order to be right with God. That's what we, we can't have it backwards. We do works because we are saved we do it from our salvation not in order to be saved in order to be made right with God because there's nothing we can ever do in our flesh to please God because our flesh is sinful our flesh is in rebellion against God and we're going to see that later on as we get into Galatians 5 uh, the fifth chapter in a few weeks and one last question for application here to think about is this are we being led by the spirit or are we being led by our flesh do we trust the spirit's work in our life to lead us the spirit of God will never lead us into sin he will always lead us to righteousness and holiness our flesh will always lead us into sin our flesh will always get us in trouble Always. Man, when we obey the flesh, when we, we react a certain way, you know, in, in, in church I used to be a part of, we say, oh, they're in the flesh. <laughs> you know, they're acting in the flesh. They're, they're living out their fleshly desires. Our flesh is always going to be in rebellion against God. Always. Or are we being led by the Spirit? Do you have the Spirit of God? If you are a believer, you have the Spirit of God 
living in you. If you're not, you don't. Today is the day of salvation. God is always calling us to himself to repent. If you're not a believer this morning, you call on God and say, God, save me. I'm miserable. I feel without hope in this world. I need a savior. I'm lost. I'm lost. And guess what? The Lord will save you. And that don't mean that you will never be miserable again. What it means is when you do encounter misery in your life, you know that you have hope in Christ. When you suffer in this life, you know that your savior suffered for you on your behalf. That's the greatest joy that we have as believers, that we do not suffer alone. That we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who suffered for us, who died in our place, who lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we could not die. None of us could go to that cross, only Christ could. And that's why we go to him and be saved, because he did that for us. Amen. Let us pray as we close. Father, we thank you this morning that we are not justified by works, but that we are justified by faith. Because, Lord, it is such a tremendous burden to try to be justified, to try to be declared righteous by doing things. Lord, there is never anything that we could do to be made right by you. And, Father, I pray that all of us see this, all of us who hear this message both believer and unbeliever, that as believers we're comforted by that and that as unbelievers we are convicted by this truth. Lord, I pray for any unbeliever who hears this, that you use your word to convict them of their sin and Lord, lead them to repentance and a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. May you bless us with it throughout this week of Thanksgiving. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're going to do our final blessing.